Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the text this evening from the book of Psalms, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may truly see, open our ears that we may truly hear your word, and open our hearts and renew them so that we will believe and live out the teachings of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I, before I read the text, I, I don't know if you remember, you rem- I'm pretty sure Raleigh Keller preached here. Remember Raleigh Keller? Yes, no. It, it hasn't been recent because he's not been in good health. But uh, Raleigh is a, was a retired OPC minister. He pastored for many years our church in Carson, California, not too far from here. But on Thursday, the Lord took Raleigh home uh, after a brief time in the hospital. And uh, I, I have very fond memories of Raleigh. He loved Jesus with all his heart. He loved the body of Christ with all his heart. And I can only imagine that right now he is rejoicing in the presence of the King of Kings, free from sin, free from disease, free from all the mortal weaknesses that we have, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we will one day be with him and with all those who have gone before us in the presence of Christ our Savior. I think, without any doubt, Raleigh heard these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father's kingdom. Well, let's turn to our text this evening, which is Psalm 35. Psalm 35, and it is uh, one of the uh, imprecatory psalms. We're going to be talking tonight because this psalm does mention these two things uh, uh, a few times in in the course of the psalm. Uh, we are going to talk about shame and vindication, the themes of shame and vindication, what they mean, and how this psalm relates those to us. Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let them be dark and let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he, had ens- that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. 
All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friends or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng I will praise you. Let not, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Here we end reading of God's word. Vindication and shame. Shame, vindication. You'll notice that there are a couple of references to this, these two words in this psalm. Verse 4 says, let them be put to shame. Uh, verse 23 says, rouse yourself from my vindication. 24 says, vindicate me, O Lord. 26 says, let them be put to shame, and also let them be clothed with shame. Both of those words have a reference to something that is seen in public or at least observed. A person might have a, a private shame or a private sense of vindication. But the fact is, for the most part, shame and vindication are seen by others and observed by others. If one is ashamed, most likely it is because a person has done something evil, wrong, stupid, foolish, that has become known to others. Likewise, to be vindicated is to be publicly shown to be right or correct or righteous in an action. Someone who is found not guilty is said to be vindicated in the court. Or uh, as events unfold, someone who may have 
may have held an unpopular opinion may be shown to be vindicated, their opinion vindicated, if in the unfolding of events and in the other ways people might be ashamed that what they said was true turns out not to be true. I want to connect these two thoughts, though, with, uh, with a question from our shorter catechism. That is question number 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? And the answer is, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Notice that word, openly. The acknowledgement and the acquittal of believers are public events seen by all. They are openly acknowledged and acquitted. In that public acknowledgement and acquittal, and I think those two words correspond to two great things that God has done for us, he has justified us. And the final open acquittal is God saying, not guilty, innocent, righteous, not in their own righteousness, but only for the righteousness of Christ that they have received by faith. And acknowledgement corresponds to the, the uh, great benefit of adoption. God acknowledges us as his children, as his sons and daughters. So openly acknowledged and openly acquitted in the resurrection. Notice it doesn't connect that with the final judgment. It connects it with the resurrection. Openly acknowledging why? Believe me, at the resurrection, there's not going to be any doubt. There's not going to be any question. There are many brothers, and we, we talked a little bit before uh, the worship service about a, a movie that's been out it came out in 1972, so how many years is that? 51 years? Those of us who are a little older might remember that movie called A Thief in the Night. Remember that? Derek. <laughs> yep, we remember it well, A Thief in the Night. And uh, the, the theme of that movie was built around the secret rapture of the church. Christ came back for his church, and then seven years later, after the tribulation, he will come back with his church. That's a, a dispensational reconstruction of, of uh, what Scripture teaches. But the thing is, they often call it a secret rapture. What is secret about trumpets blaring and people rising from the dead? And it's very public. It's very public, and there will be no doubt as to what is happening. Nor will there be a doubt as to who is ultimately vindicated and who is ultimately ashamed. There will be no doubt. That open acknowledgement and acquittal is, in fact, the ultimate vindication of believers. David's psalm... The main theme of Psalm 35, David is calling on God to bring shame to his wicked enemies and also to vindicate his faith and his way of life, which is based and flows from his 
faith. Notice that David says that his enemies hate him without cause, that his enemies slander him, that his enemies seek to put him to death. They seek his destruction. Think about this theme. Why are they David's enemies? Why are they David's enemies? I'm not sure that David was the king when he wrote this psalm. He wrote several psalms before he was the king. But it may well be that this was written at a time of of persecution, a time in his life when he was being chased from the capital city, perhaps by Absalom, by others that, that sought to uh, overthrow his, his reign. It might be uh, on an occasion from uh, Saul, who was chasing him and sought to to take his life. Who were, uh, I mentioned too, who were some of the people in David's life who contended against it? That's how the psalm starts. Contend against those who contend, contend against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Who were some who fought against David? You can answer that. Absalom, already mentioned Absalom, good. Yes, Absalom. That was a particularly painful experience of David. And David did not want to see his son destroyed, as we find out as the story unfolds. It may not have been written about Absalom, but it certainly could have been written about those who supported Absalom and joined with him in his rebellion. What are some other who are some others who contended against David? Ahithophel. Ahithophel turned against David, didn't he? And and tried to uh, counsel David's enemies. Yeah, could be something like that. How about, you remember a man named Shimei? Actually chased David out of the capital, throwing stones at him, cursing him as he went on his way. We could think of Saul, we could think of Shimei, of Absalom, of Ithophel, of, of others. Even some of his closer uh, compatriots did not always serve David well. Joab is, is one of them who was a fearsome soldier, but not entirely loyal to David and David's house. Think of Perhaps some of his time with the Philistines when he was running away from Saul. Whatever the enemy was in that, and there were many others, those are the only ones that are mentioned in Scripture, but there, there were no doubt many others. The, the royal court was a fruitful place of plots and conspiracies and treachery, even as it continues to be today. A great argument for doing away with royal courts. But then again, we have Washington, D.C., which is a great source of plots and conspiracies and treachery, too. It's not the type of government you have. It's the human heart that does this. And that brings me to my next point. At the heart of the contention between David and his enemies is the issue of faith and unbelief and a life that is led in righteousness and a life that is lived in rebellion against God. 
And that really is the dividing line here. They're not David's enemies just because David did something maybe offensive to them or they did something offensive to David that, you know, maybe they said something that, that was, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who hated David and, and sought his destruction because David stood as God's chosen king over Israel. And even before he was king, it was well known uh, that he would be the king, which is one of the reasons why Saul tried to kill him. The issue of faith and life is the heart of the issue between those who are persecuted and those who persecute. Those who are attempting to lead a righteous life, Paul says in the New Testament, all those who wish to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Persecuted. And he writes that to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy, and it's the, the strangest invitation I've ever read in the Bible, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, join me in suffering. Join me in suffering for the Lord Jesus. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will endure persecution. That's Paul's take on the really the heart of persecution. That's what it is. There's a, an enmity between those who wish to live a righteous life, those who wish to follow God's will, and those who could care less or those who actually set themselves on a path of evil very self-consciously. The enemies did evil because they did not fear God. They did not respect God. David, though a sinner, feared God and sought to do God's will. In another place, well, in another place, he says this, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. And there David puts his finger on it. For your sake, I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And that is really a dividing line. They did not fear the Lord. They did not... Uh, they did not know God, and therefore they hated God's servants. How did David's enemies try to destroy him? What are some of the things that David mentions in this psalm? Go ahead and scan through, and, and when you find a, a reference to something that his enemies intended to do to him, let me know. Kill him in his bed, okay. That's kind of nasty, isn't it? Good. They, they, they sought malicious witnesses, okay. They set up, they set traps for him that he would fall into. I'm not sure they were literal holes and 
so forth. But, but Paul, David might be speaking metaphorically or figuratively there. But they, they tried to entrap him. Another similar thing is they tried to, they tried to trap him in testimonies, asking him questions that he knew nothing about. Let's get him to say something false, and then we'll have something to hang over his head. Yeah, there's lots of evidence there of their wickedness. By the way, when we talk about setting traps and trying to entrap someone in their words, uh, when we talk about seeking someone's life, uh, well, who, who else had to deal with that? Jesus. See, Jesus is united with his people in their suffering. There's nothing that we can suffer in this world that Jesus has not also dealt with and suffered. That's one of the one of the things about union with Christ is his experiences become ours and ours become his. Not completely. I mean, we don't die for the sins of other people, but but we do die and Jesus died. And he went before us. We're tempted. He was tempted. He, he rose victorious over, over death. We will also, those in Christ, will r- rise victorious over death. Christ is vindicated in his resurrection. Christ's life and teaching are vindicated in his resurrection. And that's, of course, what's going to happen for believers. Ultimately, in our resurrection will be not just the restoration of life, but a public vindication Were David's enemies always destroyed by God in this life? Uh-uh. No. Remember Psalm 73, we mentioned that last week, and it's a psalm written by Asaph. And it's a psalm in which Asaph goes through this spiritual depression that he's been in, where he has almost begot, come to the point of, den, uh, of, of denying the faith and asking what ha- what has been the use of of following God? What has been the use in believing in God? What's been the use in pursuing a, a righteous life? Because all I see are the enemies, the the wicked, uh, gaining in influence, gaining in wealth. They grow fat. They grow they grow careless, and they raise up their uh, uh, their fists against God. And uh, they seem to be prospering all around, even while the righteous seem to be suffering. And Asaph says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, is it? Then he goes to worship in the temple, and then his, his mind gets straightened out, as it were. Um, and he remembers that their feet are on slippery places. Notice he that the impact of that is, the meaning of that is, they may do okay in this life, but this life is not the end. There is a judgment coming, there is death that comes to all of us. For the unbeliever, death is, uh, is a, a dismissal into judgment and punishment. For the believer, death is the door into the presence of the Lord. And so Asaph has his faith vindicated as he contemplates the end destiny of the wicked and the righteous. 
So all the enemies of God, all the enemies of David, or all our enemies are not always dealt with like we would like to see in this life. But we also believe that ultimately God will deal out perfect justice and perfect uh, 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 grace to his people and justice to his enemies. Sometimes we do see God answer the prayers of the church for deliverance in this life. Sometimes we will have to wait for the resurrection and the final judgment. Paul had similar issues and thoughts to deal with. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's an imprecation. That's Paul saying, this man who did great harm to us, not out of personal uh, offense, but because Paul was an apostle and because of Paul's teaching about the gospel, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 7, apparently the Thessalonian church was undergoing some persecution at the time that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. And he writes this in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 1, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, the persecution you are suffering is evidence that God counts you worthy of inheriting his kingdom. Boy, is that putting a positive spin on it, right? Persecution is an evidence of God counting you worthy. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Remember how the psalm started, contend against those who contend against me, fight against those who fight against me. Here's Paul saying he will afflict those who afflict you. Very parallel lines of thought in these passages. And when will this happen? Paul continues, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You may have to wait, Thessalonians, to see uh, God's vengeance and to see how he deals with those who, who afflict you. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus is teaching about his coming in glory. He says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on, his, on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation 
of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You see, their faith resulted in action, didn't it? By the way, this is specifically work that we as a church, all, all people in the church of Jesus Christ should engage in these activities as an outworking of our faith and our love. But this work highlights also the work of the men we call to be deacons in the church, and to a certain extent elders in the church as well. The deacons of the church are on the front lines of this, and the deacons of the church, and that doesn't mean we all don't participate to some extent, but the deacons of the church are those who minister to the least of these, my brothers. In the name of Christ, they minister, they serve. And when Jesus says, enter into the joy of my Father's kingdom, the enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, that is vindication of their faith and life. On the other hand, he goes through the same description except the opposite. With those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. That's called a sin of omission, isn't it? You didn't do what you were supposed to do. You didn't care for my people. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. When we talk about these themes of vindication and shame, this is the ultimate statement. Those who do not believe, those who do not live out their lives in service to Christ, those who do not confess Christ, and those who set themselves on paths of wickedness and self-centeredness will be put to shame. Perhaps in this life, but most definitely in the judgment. Those who trust in Christ, those who live their lives in a way that flows out from their faith in Christ, motivated by love for Christ, serving Christ and serving his people, those people will be vindicated. Sometimes in this life it will be seen but most definitely in the judgment it will be seen. 
vindication and shame. We don't like to think in terms of black and white. We like comfortable shades of gray. We don't like to think of this as vindication or shame or those that come into the kingdom prepared for them and those who are dismissed into eternal punishment. We, if we had our druthers as nice Americans, we would like to say that ultimately everybody gets in. A few years ago, we actually disciplined a minister in our presbytery. He had somehow or another come to a point in his mind where he denied the eternal judgment. And ultimately, he said, everybody will have a, a, a second chance and everybody will be saved, ultimately. That punishment will only be temporary and it will serve to awaken people and they will come again. They will come and repent and be saved ultimately. Where he got these ideas, I have no idea, but it is out there. Those teachings are out there. But see what happened. He lost his grip on this very clear distinction that God makes between those who will be vindicated and those who will be put to shame. Where do you stand on that line? I know, we're Orthodox Presbyterians. We're all in, right? I cannot take that for granted. I must give out the gospel call one more time. Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God, and we believe in the doctrine of election. It is a great comfort and joy to us, but we also believe in the free offer of the gospel. The seed should be scattered widely, without any discrimination whatsoever. Where do you stand on this line between vindication and shame? Only those who have come to the cross of Jesus have acknowledged their sin and called upon him to be their Savior and then have lived as his disciples, only they will be vindicated in the final judgment. On the other hand, those who refuse to come, those who give themselves to wickedness, those who mock the cross of Jesus Christ, will come to shame as they are dismissed into eternal judgment and punishment. Jesus uses very powerful and colorful language to describe this eternal judgment, a place where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Where do you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let me not be ashamed. Let me indeed 
and let all of us hear. When that day comes when we stand before you, and when the king looks at the nations of the earth and divides the people on his left and his right, may we be found to be in Christ. May our faith in Christ be vindicated. And the way of life that flows from that faith, we pray, Lord, the enemies may hate us, indeed all who seek to live a godly life in Jesus, will be persecuted. We understand this, we accept it as part of the, of the experience of a, of a believer. And indeed, we read about persecution in other countries, and we see the rising tide of rejection and persecution coming in our own country. We are to be shaken out of our lethargy, shaken out of our complacency. As we remember again that the great issues that we deal with are not just theoretical, theological points and fine points, but they are issues of life and death of good and evil, of shame and vindication. Pray, Father, that each one here tonight will be able to stand on that last day, claiming the righteousness of Christ as the white garment with which we are clothed, and receive from God, from the King, from the Judge, an acknowledgment and an acquittal. In Jesus, our Savior's name we pray. Amen.